Well, good morning. Let me just remind you about some of the events we've got planned coming up for Easter, which is coming uh, up quickly. Uh, The first is the week leading up to Easter. We're going to be opening up the worship center here for you to come and to pray. And we would love to have you just pop in when you can, invite a friend to come with you, uh, join in with people who are here, just spend some time praying and kind of focusing your hearts and getting ready for Easter weekend. Uh, We're also going to be preparing some devotionals for you to share in as well leading up to that Easter weekend so you can kind of get your heart tuned in and ready for the events of that weekend. Um, Then on Good Friday, we'll have our journey event. So if you can picture Journey to the Cross on wheels going on around the city. And then at 6.30, we're going to gather for a Good Friday communion service here and uh, have communion in the round. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll meet for two worship services in person, and we'll be asking you to think about who you can invite to join you, whether you join on in person or online. We would love to have you share uh, the significance of Easter weekend uh, with someone else who could be blessed by it this year. So be, be thinking about that. Uh, today, we're going to pick up again in our series, Walking Through the Gospel of Mark, and today we're at the exact center of Mark's gospel. And everything from here forward is really going to be pointing us towards the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Mark's gospel is really structured around three confessions. Uh, We saw one in chapter one, we see one today, and then the third one we're going to look at on Easter weekend. And these are occasions where real people wrestled with this Jesus who the crowds were fascinated with, watched him, listened to his claims that he was the son of God, and came to the conclusion that they believed him. He is the son of God. And as Mark is putting this gospel together, and the way he's laying out the story, he's trying to set it up in a way that you and I can read it, listen to the claims, listen to the stories, and come to the same conclusion that Jesus truly is the Son of God. The first confession is Mark's himself in verse 1, chapter 1, right out of the gates. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. No warm-up, no cute story to kind of get us ready. Just a bold declaration that Mark himself has wrestled with these claims and has come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, today is the second confession that we're going to look at, found right here in the middle. It's found in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start reading at verse 27. I would love for you uh, to open up your Bibles, open up your phone, and get it ready, because these are such essential verses for the gospel, for Mark's accounting of the story of the life of Jesus, for, and for our understanding about what it means to be his followers. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples were, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ, or the Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, the location for this little story is important, Caesarea Philippi. It's the location where it was normal for people to make confessions. Um, Herod lived there, the, the Roman leader. They had a temple there built to the Roman emperor, and it was part of the daily worship of that area where people would come and they would gather and they would confess 
that Caesar, the Roman leader, was Lord. Right next to it was a temple to the Greek god Pan. And as part of daily life in Caesarea Philippi, people would show up to that temple and they would make the declaration um, that Pan was Lord. So this is the location, this is the backdrop whereby Jesus and these disciples are having this conversation and where he asks them, who do you say I am? If this was, we were to put this in a Canadian context, we would say, you know, Jesus shows up in front of the House of Commons in Ottawa, right next to a giant hockey rink that has the largest Tim Hortons in it, and he makes the declaration there. This is the backdrop for this conversation. And Jesus asks the question that you and I should never ask our family and friends, what are people saying about me? And they give such a positive answer, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, these are all high honors. And then Jesus asks the question that the entire Gospel of Mark is consumed with. Who do you say I am? And Peter gives this second confession of the Gospel. You are the Messiah or the Anointed One. And when he says that, he's saying, you know, the person that we've been waiting for for thousands of years, you're him. The one that we've been expecting since the prophet Samuel stood over David and messiahed or anointed him, you're that guy. The one that the prophets talked about that would come someday and lead the nation of Israel up out of the ash heap and put them on display for the world to see again, that's you. This is the second confession, incredibly powerful, even though it's in this very strange environment. Now, Jesus starts to unpack what this really means, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord, because he he knows these disciples like us, they don't fully understand what that means. So let's keep reading chapter 8, verse 31 to 33. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, which are, this is kind of like the religious community, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And you can just imagine for the disciples how difficult it was to get their mind around the words that were coming out of his mouth, even though he was speaking to them plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now the word that Mark uses here is the same word that Jesus, he uses to describe when Jesus is casting demons out of people. This is strong language. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. So notice he's had a conversation with Peter. Now he's expanding it to include the disciples. And he says, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men or human things. He then called the crowd to him. Notice he's expanding his circle even more. Verse 34. Along with the disciples, and he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, it's hard for us. If you've grown up in church, you know these words. You're expecting them. For these disciples, these words are, are stunning. I mean, for Peter, he's just got the right answer. It's probably the first time he's had the right answer in all the times that he's followed Jesus. And then this moment turns sideways on him so quickly. Maybe an analogy would help. 
Imagine this happening in a business context. Uh, you meet someone who you think is the greatest leader or the greatest CEO in the world. You've been mentored by them. You've watched their greatness. And you just kind of confess to them, you're the greatest leader. And I'm going to give my life to follow you in this company. And wherever you go, I'll go with you. And then right in the middle of this special moment where you kind of declare your loyalty to this person, they speak to you about what's going to happen next. And they talk about being rejected by the board of governors at the company, that the company's stock is going to plummet, they'll get kicked off the stock exchange, they're going to end up working out of a rusty old Atco trailer in some abandoned industrial park. Can you imagine? This is kind of what's going on for these disciples. They have this vision about what it's going to be like, but when Jesus talks about what it's going to be like, it's completely different. In their mind and in their imagination, there is no future whereby the Messiah suffers, where he's mistreated, and where he dies. So what does Peter do? Well, he does what you and I would do. He takes Jesus aside and he says, no, 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 that's not how it can happen. It can't happen that way. Jesus, or Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus uses those startling language where he says, get behind me, Satan. And when you hear that, immediately what Mark wants you to do is to kind of rewind the tape in your mind back to when Jesus was being tempted right after he got baptized and to remember the scene whereby somebody offered Jesus a way to have a kingdom without any suffering. Who was it? It was the devil. It was Satan who offered him that. And Peter now is trying to make him the exact same offer. Hey, no, no, you can be king. You can be Messiah. But you can only, you can only do it. You can do it without any suffering whatsoever. But Jesus challenges him and says, my ways are not your ways. Now, our confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, It's the start, it's the beginning, it's the absolute foundation of our faith. But it's not where our faith ends. It's actually the very beginning. Our confession that Jesus is Lord is not something we say and now we just sit around and hope Jesus comes back soon and takes us to the great by and by. Not at all. The moment we announce that Jesus is the Son of God and we make that confession, we have now begun and we've enrolled ourselves in the school of discipleship, which is learning to live our lives every day with Jesus as our Lord. And that's what happens next. And as I unpack this on this International Sunday, when we celebrate and give thanks for the the great work of God in our church, that we would be a multicultural church, this has great implications for us. Now, so after we confess Jesus as Lord, now we begin this process whereby we start unpacking all of our thoughts, all of our ideas, all of our beliefs, all of our life, everything under the the lordship of Jesus and reflecting on, do we understand what it means to be a disciple? Remember, the disciples did not confess Jesus as Lord and then instantly become perfect Christians with perfectly installed ideas and understandings about what it means to live with Jesus as Lord. No, they were still the same people and they needed to begin the process of transformation. Peter confesses Jesus is Lord. It's a great moment. And he immediately realizes he has no idea what that means. He has no idea what it's going to cost him. He has no idea the way Jesus is going to lead him. 
Now, Peter grew up with a very Jewish, religious, cultural upbringing. So he had religious and cultural understandings of how God would work. He grew up in a Roman, a world dominated by the Roman government. He had very strong political feelings about how um, God should work in his day. Namely, kick Rome's butt, uh, run them out of town, maybe do some really, really nasty things to Herod, and raise Israel up again as the great beacon of hope. And what we watch here is Peter discovers that his vision is lacking in places, it's wrong in places, and it's evil or against the Lord's plan in places. To which we ask ourselves, when we come to Christ and declare him as Lord, are we any different? Isn't it this moment that when we become a Christian, we start to realize all the things in our life that need the attention of the grace and mercy of God. This is what's going on with Peter. He discover, has this great moment of confession, and then he realizes, and Jesus teaches him, now we begin the process of you discovering what it means to learn with me as Lord. Because whether we grew up in the church whether we grew up in a Christian country, whether we confessed, when we confessed Jesus as Lord, we all brought with us pre-existing thoughts and understandings and ideas about what that life was going to be like. And when we start to follow Jesus, we start to discover some of those things were not accurate at all. This is not a criticism at all. What we see happening in this tense exchange is what needs to happen in all of our lives. We need to let Jesus teach us and transform us and show us attitudes and ways and behaviors that are contrary to his kingdom. I mean, when Jesus is rebuked by Peter, he responds by saying, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter this vision you have of me of this, as Messiah going all Rambo on Rome, and that's a human vision. And if you have been a Christian for more than two hours, you have moments in your life too where you realize maybe some of the thoughts you had about the Christian life or what it meant to follow Jesus were your own views, and they weren't of the Lord. Now this is where I think one of the wonderful benefits of being part of a multicultural church comes in. Because we get to learn from each other in such a profound way. Uh, We get to see this as we watch how other people live out their faith. And I think it's just a wonderful opportunity for all of us to kind of dig deeper in this journey of letting the Lord show us things that need to get worked out in our life. Now, whether you would say it out loud or not, you know this. Because if you've come here from Nigeria, and you've met Christians from India... No doubt after visiting with them and hanging out and watching them live out their faith and hearing them talk about it, you've thought to yourself, hmm, they do some things differently than we do. They believe some things that are different than I believe. If you're a Christian from mainland China and you've spent some time with people, Christians from Brazil, no doubt you've come away from that and thought to yourself, boy, oh boy, you know, they do things differently than I do. They believe some things or think about some things differently than I do. And if any of you watching today were born somewhere outside of Canada and you've been in Canada and maybe you've been to our church even after like two Sundays, you were probably driving home thinking, man, they're just weird. Like the way they do things is so bizarre. It's so different. I just don't get it, right? 
Look, that's a good thing. What's happening is you are learning to see your faith through the eyes of other people. And this, while it can be challenging at times, is an incredible gift. And it's magnified the more you get involved in our church. Now, when Jill and I do premarital counseling with couples, we often tell them one of the gifts your spouse is going to give you is they're going to help you see your own family through new eyes. Maybe you've gone uh, with your spouse to, uh, to your home for Thanksgiving weekend. You have the dinner and all the get-togethers, and on your drive home, your spouse says to you, now, did you ever notice when your family gets together, everything's a competition? Or did you notice that your mom always has to be right? Or did you know that your adult sister, every time she comes home, resorts to a 10-year-old? Right? And suddenly in that moment, you start to realize you see your family through someone else's eyes. You see the strengths that you've maybe never seen before, and maybe you see oddities or weaknesses that you've never seen before. And this, it's a gift. Now, the same is true when you're part of a beautiful community, where you have people who come from different economic and ethnic and social and denominational backgrounds. One of the great things that happens is you will start to see your own faith through the eyes of other Christians. And you will and you should have many moments where you discover some strengths about your own faith and maybe some weaknesses. Or maybe you discover some attitudes or ideas that really aren't rooted in the Christian faith. They're more rooted in the culture or the background that you came from. This, sorting this out and wrestling with this and trying to figure this out, this is the work of discipleship. It can be painful at times. And it can be beautiful at times. Now you've heard us use the phrase here that we're part of a beautiful community, that on a Sunday morning you're sitting next to people from different economic and ethnic and denominational and different ages and stages of life. But what we hold together is the confession that Jesus is Lord. And once we stand under this confession together, we kind of link arms as unique and different as we are, and we begin this journey of learning to follow Christ and learn what does it mean to live with him as Lord. One of the verses that I love so much comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. It kind of captures this beautiful vision. Let me read it for you. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. This is Isaiah's way of saying, everybody will say that the Lord is our God. It's the highest, he's the highest of gods. And all nations, nations will stream, not neighborhoods, nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. So here is the Lord high and lifted up and the nations are gathering together and they're linking arms and say, let's walk so that we can learn together. Let's walk so we can grow together. Let's walk so we can discover what it means to live with the Lord as our God. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the God from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Namely, this journey together may have some stumbling points. There may be some difficulties along the way. 
but the Lord's going to help us sort all that out. And then he has this beautiful image. They're going to beat their swords or their weapons into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. They're going to take those things that we use to fight against each other with, those ideas, maybe military, and we're going to become family. We're going to work together in some kind of fruitful, common vision. This is God's vision. We confess that the Lord is our God, and that we walk and we learn together, and the Lord helps us as we figure all of that out. You know, that's our vision for a beautiful community. This is not some kind of government diversity program. This is the gospel, that in Jesus, we are family under him. And then in heaven someday, there's not going to be a worship service for Mandarin speakers and for Brazilians and for folks from this part of Africa and that part of Africa or Canadians and Americans. That's not the way it's going to work. It's not going to be something for rich and something for poor and something for middle class. We will be together. This is the Lord's vision. And so our discussion around being a beautiful community is all about let's figure out how to do it now. And it's wonderful when it happens. Let me give you an example of just a little example. You've heard me talk about it before, about how this works, how when we start to see our faith through the eyes of somebody else, our faith is blessed and we discover things and we grow. Uh, A few years ago, I was thrilled to get the call uh, from a couple in our church who had purchased a new car and they wanted me to come and pray and dedicate it to the Lord. I had never been asked to do this before. And I thought it was wonderful, so I I went right on over. I had to make it up because my little Baptist minister's manual did not have prayers for the dedication of a new vehicle. And I went over and I spent some time doing it and I drove away just, my heart was full. For them, this vehicle was a gift from God. They wanted the world to know, God, I'm grateful for this gift you've given to me. And they wanted to use it to be a blessing to other people. They used it to drive people to church and drive people around. This was, it had purpose to it. And I just saw in my own faith a poverty that I thought, you know, I want to look at all of my stuff through that same lens. So I was really moved by it. I shared the story with you and in kind of as many settings as as I could. And I remember getting a call one day from a Canadian guy who had never thought about this before. And he just bought a car. And he said, Rob, I wonder if you'd come on over and pray for this new vehicle that I've purchased. I'm learning to see all that I have as a gift from God, and this would help me. And I'm learning to see all the things that I have as for his purposes, and this would be helpful. And I went on over, and I, and I had this prayer with him. And I thought, this is just a wonderful example of how we start to see our life and our faith and maybe some of the poor, thin areas through the eyes of someone else who's stronger in a certain area and together we become stronger as a body and as disciples, we start to get a clearer, more profound sense of what it means to be his followers as we learn from each other. But this can have some challenges too. Being part of a beautiful community on the outset looks really great and it's exciting, but there's some real challenges because if we don't change our thinking, if we bring with us into our faith these old ways of seeing people and these old attitudes that maybe we grew up with or we inherited or were part of our upbringing and we refuse to let the Spirit of God transform them and then we bring those into the fellowship, it causes hurt and it causes 
division. Let me just give you a couple of examples. We had a family who left our church because they thought we were being too nice to our Syrian refugees because they were Muslims. We have seen people be in conflict who've come from the same country but had very different ideas about their government. And it caused them to break fellowship over it. We've had people who've had questions about being a part of a church that's got any association or linkages with the old North End. We've had a complaint because our sign in the foyer has French on it. Now, these examples are not about politics at their heart. They're not really language rights issues or crime issues. These are about attitudes in our heart that need redeeming. That we have yet to allow the Spirit of God to have his way with them. And that when we refuse to do that and we bring them with us into the body of Christ, it causes harm and it causes division. And they remind us that no matter where we've come from, no matter our past or the kind of cultural background or attitudes that we grew up with, when we declare that Jesus is Lord, we are now submitting the whole totality of our life to the Holy Spirit who begins the lifelong, not weekend work, the lifelong work of transforming our thoughts and our ideas uh, that might be sinful or harmful or evil and transforming them to match the vision of God and his kingdom. I love the quote of da- from Dallas Willard who's um, passed on. He, he wrote this, there's no problem in the local church that discipleship cannot fix. We might say it this way, there's no problem in my life that discipleship cannot fix. And discipleship is learning to live under the reign and rule of God in every aspect of life. This is why when you're reading your scriptures, when you're having conversations in your life group or in your adult Bible study groups or youth group or River Kids, when you're learning to wrestle with God, what does it look like for us all together to confess you as Lord and to be your followers? What work do you need to do in my heart? And that's the question I want to leave with you today. What areas of your heart are you still holding on to? You have let to allow the Spirit of God to be at work in. And can you imagine that as painful as that might be and uncomfortable as it might be, the benefit is so much more beautiful and so much greater than anything you could imagine. So, confession number two. Peter, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And in that moment, in that exchange that he has with Jesus, he realizes the rest of his life he's being invited to live in humble submission to this Messiah, allowing the Spirit to have access to everything in his life that God might redeem it and retool it to use him to be a blessing as we will see later. He does. Let me pray for us. God, today, we thank you for the joy of being a part of your family, a community of people who are wrestling and learning and trying to figure out what does it look like to live with Jesus as our Lord? And what does it look like to live with Jesus as our Lord when we all come from different backgrounds? 
We all, each and every one of us, have different attitudes and ideas and cultural influences that we bring with us to this journey. Lord, may today we willingly and humbly submit ourselves to you again. God, may we give your Holy Spirit free reign in our hearts, that any of our human understandings and our human ideas of what it looks like to follow you will be transformed. For Lord, we know that your ways are greater. So we give ourselves to you today in Christ's name. Amen.